Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, digging books that aren't drier than dirt. I'm your host, Tristan Harrenstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Hey, everybody. Today, we are going to start our brand new book. Before we get to that, though, as always, if you are watching this on YouTube or listening to it as a podcast, please like, subscribe, send us a review, whatever you like. We really appreciate that feedback. It makes a big difference to us. And it lets us know that people are enjoying the podcast. Also, I want to highlight that we are now on Goodreads as well as our podcast. So if you follow us on our social media, you'll see general FPAN announcements and news as well in there. But if you follow us on the Goodreads account, that's only going to be the podcast related stuff. So if you don't want all the other stuff, that's where you can go and get some of that there, too. So before we get started talking about the book, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the special podcast interview you did that was released, what, like a couple weeks ago now, right? So first of all, very cool, very insightful. If you haven't listened to it, definitely listen to it. Um, It's a great follow up to our last book. It's doing history. (laughs) Yes. Like Barbara said, if you haven't listened to it, do check it out. But I sat down with a good friend of mine, Dr. Andres Garzon Oshley, and he is a native of Ecuador, currently working in the United States. And he and I worked together and I knew that he was had a personal relationship with some of this topic. Of course, the book was very good about highlighting that this was not just a South American or Peruvian issue. I thought it would be a good subject, and I think it turned out really well. He was a great person to talk to, and he had some good insight and perspectives. Yeah, I really enjoyed his insight on some of the things that you and I had wondered about, but him, you know, being from Ecuador and being an archaeologist, he has a unique insight that you and I just don't have, so it was great to hear from him, and I especially appreciate him taking the time to do that with us. Yep, Uh, that's a special episode right before this one, Uh, so yeah, check that out. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. But this time we are going to launch ourselves into our new book, Artifacts of a Longchamp Mystery by Mary Anna Evans, who sounds like a really cool person. I pulled up her bio and um, she's written a lot of books, which um, I'm enjoying this book so far. So I might have to check out some of her other ones. But she's not only is she an author, but she also holds degrees in physics and engineering which as I was reading the book, you could tell she did her research and she was really trying to be factual with um, some of the archaeological aspects of the book. Uh, And I think that might be because of her science background and engineering background. But she's written quite a few books. She has quite a few awards. And yeah, so I'm excited to read a book that's a little bit different than what we've read before. Yeah, we've never done a true fiction book before. Yeah. We've done some, a historical fiction, but this is a straight up fictional book um, about murder mysteries involving archaeologists. Yeah, it'll be a good break from kind of our heavier topic, like murder to murder, but still, it's at least fiction this <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, this is and, fake murder. Right, fake murder. <laughs> Yeah, I also wanted to make sure to do a kind of a spoiler warning, of course. This is not going to be a spoiler-free podcast. Probably you you would have guessed that already, but I just want to lay it out there really clear that we are going to spoil this. So if you want to read the book before listening, that's fine, and we'd like to hear that. Actually, also, since this is a little different, and this is actually a series with this character, if you like this in particular and want us to return to it someday, let us know, because it looks like we could potentially do that. I think 
Uh, we'll probably switch to a different book after this one, but we could always return to it if people like this. Yeah. For this episode, we're doing the prologue in the first 10 chapters. So if you are reading along, you can get up through that point and then listen to the podcast if you'd like. Yep. So without further ado, let's jump into chapter one. We start off strong, I would say, with I'm just going to read a little excerpt here because it lays out quite a bit of this from the start. Faye Longchamp was digging like a pot hunter, and she hated herself for it. Pot hunters were a bare notch above grave robbers. They were vultures. Once a pot hunter defiled an ancient site, archaeologists could only hope to salvage a fraction of the information it had once held. And information, not artifacts, was the goal of legitimate archaeology. Yes. I know. I, even in my notes, I wrote, strong start, exclamation point. Strong start, condemnation, right off the bat. I feel like that condemnation is maybe a little weakened throughout the story so far, but... But I think that's also expressed in the beginning where she's like, she's hating herself for what right. she's doing. And the book explains why she's doing what she's doing, which you can argue back and forth if it's a good justification or not. Of course, you and I probably say not. But, you know, I'd be interested in hearing what our followers have to say about that, too. Well, and it I guess you could say it explores a gray area yeah. in some of this. And there's no harm in exploring that and talking about it and where should those lines be. And it's OK to have different places where the lines should be from person to person, too. One of the things we talked about in our last book was the economic factors that force people to loot. And Faye is, although fictional, that's kind of why she's doing it to mm -hmm. save her property. Yeah. So it immediately establishes a little bit about where she's digging and why she's, what she's doing is illegal. And that was one thing I had questions about when I heard the premise for this, because, you know, she's looting artifacts and selling them illegally and it's dangerous and risky to her. But she owns a historic property. And so what she's doing here is she is actually on some federally managed islands digging. So, yeah, that's very illegal. I wonder a little why she felt the need to go out to these islands for that because she owns a piece of property that is an archaeological site and not that I want her to do that but she could dig there perfectly legally right and have at no legal risk um I think there could be some social risk with her peers in archaeology right but as far as legal risk there wouldn't be any problems there yeah so the reason she has taken to looting is a little background she had essentially inherited a plantation property from her mother's side of the family, I think. And property taxes are due and she is afraid she won't be able to pay them. Uh, she was an archaeology student, but I guess she had to take care of her mom and her grandma mm -hmm. and was unable to finish school. And she has a job working for an archaeologist. It's kind of like, I guess, field tech, like a, a lead field tech, but obviously not enough to pay the hefty property taxes that come with a big plantation house. And on an island. Yeah. In Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Which the whole time I'm reading this book, I'm like, where is this? What is the inspiration for that? And it takes place essentially just relatively south of where you and I are. So I'm always looking at the actual geography compared to what she has in this book. And that's been really kind of fun. Yeah, I was having fun trying to suss where some of the inspirations were for mm -hmm. it. If you look at the map at the beginning of the book and assuming up on the page is north, which there isn't a north arrow, so that's a little debatable. Um, but looking at the topography of the mainland, then you'd actually be placing us right about where Dog Island is if you look it up. There are some other places it could be, but they're very um, delta. Not That's not the term I'm looking for. 
I think it's a delta. Delta, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, they're very kind of delta-like with a lot of uh, very spread out, a lot of marshy. This doesn't look like it as much based on the map we see, of course. And like, I don't know if this was intentional, but sometimes as I'm reading this book, I get Louisiana Bayou vibes yep. too. So I don't know if there was a little inspiration of that thrown in there or if maybe if she's not from the area, this area strikes her as very similar to that. I'd be curious to know. I felt like she's pulling from kind of a range of areas. To be clear, I say it's about Dog Island. This is not Dog Island or right. anything that actually exists. Right. If you look at the map and look, look at the descriptions, nothing there matches. So this is all fictionalized. But if you look up the names of some of the islands, there are Lost Isles in Louisiana. And then also there's a lot of description of Coquina buildings. And Coquina is, how do you, would you describe it, Barbara? It's... Um, a, a rock made of shell, kind of ancient shell concrete. Yeah, yeah, and it's not something that you really find on this part of the Florida coast. It is on the eastern part of the Florida coast, Kingsley Plantation. If you look up that, uh, some of their slave cabins were uh, made of coquina, and so I wonder if some of the inspiration also came from there. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely a range and. I suspect that range might be even a little intentional to basically make it very clear this is not an actual place. Right. Yeah. So, for sure. yeah. So there are definitely some things that we don't really get in the actual panhandle, but by and large, you can tell. And there's actually some interesting. Well, I'll get to that later. <laughs> so, yeah, there's one thing that strikes me about this book. And one thing that happens right away is actually some reasonably well done descriptions of the archaeological process, like explicitly mentioning a quarter inch screen and screening I, through that. That's like the basic screen size that we use. I noticed that, too. I even made a note. It's very, very specific. Mm -hmm. It does tend a little more towards the things than I like to see, like uh, immediately described every day as a treasure hunt, you know, and little things like that. It's not quite how we like to portray archaeology for reasons we've discussed in this podcast before, but nothing too overtly out and of control I mean, if you I mean, if you talk to any archaeologist, the reason they a lot of us got into it was because of the things, you know, that's yeah. what intrigues people on we, the most basic like level. We still the things. Yeah. It's just not the end goal for what we're doing. Yeah. And another thing I found interesting, Faye, the main character is mixed race. And I guess she has her buddy, Joe Wolf Mantooth, mm -hmm. which I love the name, <laughs> who is Native American. The way it's portrayed is like this is odd or I don't know. That's something that kind of gave me Louisiana vibes, almost like Creole inspired kind okay. of in some ways. But that definitely plays into this. Race does become kind of a factor in some ways. There's other characters where it is or has been an issue as well. It's a plantation house. And for and somehow, and I, I guess we're kind of learning as we read the book, how her family, who is of mixed race, ended up with this plantation, which mm -hmm. is kind of odd. But that also, I feel like, is inspired partially by Kingsley. I was wondering, and, we, and it's something we can talk about a bit more as we go, too, but the presentation of, of race sometimes and almost seemed like they approached stereotypes. Did you ever get a sense of that? Definitely not in a position to speak with any authority on this. Right. I think it, it yeah, it is. I just spent a weekend down on the coast, <laughs> actually this weekend down in Apalachicola. 
And I obviously I'm white. So again, not in any position to really understand this issue. But it, it seems to be not I don't think simplified is the correct word, but more explicit than I think it is in actuality, you know, like more I was thinking, divided. I was thinking also of the presentation of Joe Wolf Mantooth, for example, and kind of like the details, like here in the first chapter, she undercovers a human burial. And his first thing is we need to consecrate it. We need to do some things that I understand are real practices. Mm -hmm. But he almost, I don't, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It felt like he was almost a bit of a stereotype in the way he's portrayed. But I don't know if that was Again, I'm sure I can't speak with any real authority on on this portrayal one way or the other. Yeah, I don't know. Cause just kind of had a sense that kind of like, I'm not sure how I feel about this. When I, you know, my last job, I worked, my, my boss was Native American. And when we would come across burials, um, he would have us do certain things. He may not be there, but he didn't, he essentially didn't want the way he described to me is like that spirit attached to me. And then me coming back to the office <laughs> with that. And he was mm -hmm. like, I don't want that here. And so he had me it involved a uh, grapevine and mint. We always had to carry mint with us, like a like an Altoid or something. Right. He was like, throw an Altoid there, put some grape leaves down. So I know stuff like that is done. But yeah, it. I think it's just her. Maybe the author is using it as a tool to kind of show the differences with the various characters. Yeah. And I will say with Joe's character, he does definitely gain some, he gets more interesting. He goes beyond this, just the stereotypes, I think, a little little bit in some ways though it almost gets a little stronger too we can get to that yeah. when we get to that yeah so. i see what you're saying yeah i'm just not i'm just kind of curious about this subject i'm not sure what i think of it exactly back to our story uh she's digging on the island she, nearby is the excavation she's been hired for on another island that excavation on sea green island is actually to try and stop a development of the island, which is already interesting to me because <laughs> we always have people wanting archaeology to stop things. And reality is it doesn't. Right. Yeah, we often I haven't had so many lately, but we used to get a lot of calls from people. Oh, my gosh. When I was out there on the construction site, which is trespassing, don't do that. <laughs> I found a piece of pottery. You guys have to go out there and tell them to stop. And that's not at all how it works. <laughs> the close closest archaeology can get to stopping it is if the state agency requires so much archaeology that becomes cost prohibitive for the developer yeah. to do exactly what they wanted. Usually they will do something else or sometimes they'll just pay for the archaeology and it's gone anyway, either yeah. way. Yeah. So it doesn't really stop the uh, the construction. So this first chapter bounces back between Faye's perspective and the perspective of two archaeology students over on Sea Green Island. They have stayed behind from the crew to set up pin flags for the next day, for the next day's excavations, basically. I could see that being a real thing to happen. Yeah, get a couple of folks to camp out on the island and do a little extra work and stuff. Yeah, so you can get started first thing in the morning. Uh, they're using total station and stuff. And that's all very legit. You want very, very accurate locations yeah. for this kind of thing. Joe shows up and they find the human burial. And it's interesting. It, the writing is, is very engaging in how that's kind of recovered because, you know, it's stuff like it wasn't rock nor metal nor plastic. 
kind of little bit of drama built up around it. But yeah, human skull is found. One thing I thought was interesting is that Faye, uh, she focused on the burial and talked about how the context of the burial was unusual. In particular, there's no sign of graves or human habitation in the, around there, but it's pretty well established in the book and in reality that these islands change pretty dramatically throughout yeah. history. Yeah, they were all pretty much barrier islands. They move and... Right. And so yeah. it seems very plausible to me that there could have been more there at one point and this is all that's left for all she knows. Because she's not doing archaeology. So, you know, she right. maybe doesn't have the full context of this. <laughs> right. But of course, for the point of the narrative, this actually is not a normal burial. Indications given are that this is a murder from quite some time ago. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes. And so we keep shifting back and forth between her and the students. Oh, and, and she does identify this body as a woman because there was quite a expensive earring. Yeah, there was like a pearl earring. Yeah. With like platinum metal and yeah. pretty, pretty expensive. Yeah. yeah. Not your usual find. After all of this, they cover up the body and she returns home to Joyus, the plantation home. This is our first description of the home. It sounds very rundown, but peaceful, I guess, is kind of how at least we're seeing it through Faye's perspective. Yeah, here. it looks like she's done a lot of work to try and put it back together as best she can so that it's livable. But I get the sense that it's not necessarily living in comfort. She's living by candlelight, lantern light, essentially. There's like no power. And it's established she has a generator, but yeah. she doesn't have the money to run that all the right. time. And, yeah. yeah, and very minimal. It's not like it's well furnished. She's trying to keep it a little bit under wraps. Right. You know, so it's like kind of overgrown and things like that. One thing I I maybe I can see, I didn't see it at the time, was there is a bit of a dilemma that she, you know, she found the murder, but she can't report it because she wasn't there legally. And I'm like, well, you could do that anonymously. Like you don't have to like put your name in and stuff to report that kind of thing. Yeah. That's the true. other hand, I think the scrutiny it would bring to the area is where the real problem is for right. her we'll find out kind of squatting on her own property we'll find yeah, out later she doesn't i guess she doesn't have a deed to the property well not this property to the home the place she's living she does right but they can't know it's inhabited because of tax reasons yeah she doesn't want them anyway, that's that's later in the book but yeah it's very yeah she's essentially kind of semi-squatting right. <laughs> on her own property on the down low. <laughs> I was interested in the description of the house. Um, the main staircase is a spiral staircase. I've never heard of that in one of these style homes before. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, if you think of some of the descriptions of homes in Small Things Forgotten, one of the home styles that he described was there you enter, there's a central hallway, and that hallway includes a staircase up to the second layer. And that's how I've seen most plantation mm -hmm. style homes, actually. Yeah, there's the staircase up to and it's a part the, of the, the first floor. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, a usually like a basement level, even if it's like an above ground basement. Right. Um, which I guess in this case, it is Florida. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, that's Kakina. The yeah. Basement, the yeah, yeah I, that was interesting to me, too. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because the book I have actually has a picture and it does not have a spiral staircase. And it well, looks... that's this is the internal staircase they're describing. That's spiral. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, that's what I meant with the hallway. Well, usually like I think usually like me, the only time I've seen a spiral staircase is up to the um, cupola. 
Yeah, for like really the really narrow like servants staircases and stuff. Yeah, I've seen that, but I haven't seen it as part of the main one. Anyway, that's a, a unique feature of this house either way. It's noted that Joe wears moccasins. So this is just kind of me like it's kind of all this kind of builds to me feeling like he's a little being stereotyped a little bit, I guess. I will say, though, sometimes people kind of lean in to their heritage. And, and that's fine. He could also just be one of those guys. Like I, like I said, <laughs> I'm not able to speak with authority here. Mm-hmm. Just kind of had a, enough of that stuff. Maybe wonder. Joe gives Faye a gift. You remember this? He had uh, taken one of the artifacts or pieces of an atlatl that she'd uncovered illegally. And he had fixed them for her and basically like repurposed them and everything. Which I was like, wow, you found an atlatl? That's right, pieces really of cool. An atlatl, yeah. <laughs> like, they're made of wood. They usually don't survive. Well, I don't know that this is explicitly said to be wood. I forget the piece described, but there's like, there's there parts of it of an atlatl that are harder than wood, potentially. And I got the impression at the very least he was working with those pieces, but I'm not sure as thinking about it, if it was wood I don't or know not. how you would tell that it was a piece of an atlatl if you didn't have it at least somewhat articulated. Yeah, like there's the the pin where the atlatl would set. Maybe you could that tell could that maybe. was. There's yeah. the I've seen like some shaped shell finger. Oh yeah. Holders. I've seen weights. Yeah, but how would you know it was a weight for an atlatl? Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to work through it. It's like, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I don't know that you would know that for sure. And finding that kind of thing on unless she's dug other than the bear the islands, which hasn't been shown so far. Right. That would be extremely rare in this climate. I feel like. Unless it was under... Anyway, yeah, it's a lot of questions there. Uh, spend a little time describing her collection of things that she couldn't sell, basically. Yeah, her room of artifacts or whatever, which it's funny because... And I know she is not necessarily an archaeologist. She at least doesn't have the degrees, but she does know better. Um, she's, you know, trained as an archaeologist. In this context, my understanding, this is not an excuse, but my understanding was that she had dug them to try and sell them and yeah. then couldn't sell them. So it's like, well, what else am I going to do with them? Yeah. And one of the things that gets me is like the stuff she's digging up and you get to this a little bit later and she's trying to sell. It's like that would never sell. That's not going to. And if it did sell, it's definitely not going to sell for enough to make your property taxes. Yeah. It's not like our last book where they're digging up gold and you know right. these precious metals. It's pottery and arrowheads and run-of-the-mill stuff that you would expect to find in Florida. Right. While she's, so she's got the ring from the dead woman that she's taken with her. I don't honestly know why she did, but she's, feel like she has to find a place to hide it now because it's crime scene. She's tampered with a crime scene. Yes. Like this is not. Which I think is maybe one of her reasons for taking it is because like, oh, shoot, I touched it. I don't, you know, like. I mean, you still would be less trouble leaving it than. Yeah. Anyway, um, while doing this in a little nook, she tried to stick it in. She also found a journal from a man named William Whitehall. Uh, it's dated to 1872. Uh, this is so. This is part of the mystery. Who is this person? How does this relate? It does it relate to her ancestry? Yeah, she doesn't recognize the name or anything. Right. It does comment that the F's are almost written as S's and something about time changing even the alphabet, which. I thought it was interesting because there's also a lot of personal preference in these, these older writing styles too. And then also I find it a little funny because there's also just surely what you're used to reading. Like I have a 
a professor who can read old style Spanish line writing, which I've tried to look up images of that in the past. I could never find an example of it that he showed us, but basically it looks like someone just scribbled a line across the whole page. And this is a style of writing. He can read that. But then actually in his class, I was transcribing a collection of letters from the 1860s and he couldn't read that at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it was really funny to me that how much of that is based on just how used to you get to it. That's true for individual writing and stuff, too. Yeah, so. I've, I've seen the, a lot of times the Fs that look like Ss. Yeah. And you kind of have to use the context of the rest of the word sometimes to decipher what the word is because of that. You're like, is that enough? Is that an S? Uh. Yeah. But one thing that got me about that is um, she talks about how in the journal... He uh, would write one way like you and I would write, and then he would do a quarter turn and write the other way mm -hmm. to, I guess, Save his paper. paper. I've not seen that. I've heard of that. I, I haven't seen it or had to interact with it. It sounds very intense to try and decipher, but yeah, I, ha I have so, heard of that. I mean, but... It, and this was a frontier situation, so I could see that being maybe approach you might take. Maybe. I've just read a lot of documents from the Panhandle area, and I've never come across it that. Seems a little excessive or a little maybe just a touch out of place yeah but it is something that did happen yeah i, do know I just that. in the book i felt like it was made to be like a common thing yeah and i, I don't I need think to look up when as, exactly that was yeah i don't think practiced. it was as common as some people might perceive and it i think it often might have been more associated with like mail as well because you're sending the letter mm -hmm. and less paper is going to get you know more mileage from your paper that way yeah. again this is something we could look up maybe and come back to next time and have a little more detail on that but the chapter closes with an excerpt uh, from the journal um with william whitehall accounting the birth of his daughter i didn't see anything necessary to point out here it's just no, it's just i think important to know that he has a daughter yep and that's <laughs> that kind of the important later. part of this, this point yes yeah okay and so that brings us to the end of that chapter and moving on to chapter two one of the first things i noted in this chapter was she talks about repairing the roof of the house and how the original roof was slate that seems like a very expensive roof I in know this area the goodwood roof was slate so okay. it does happen and i was curious about not, that not so much anymore because it's really heavy right you know and it's not native to here no that's you, the thing it had to be shipped yeah. in but these were people who owned the old Uber elite, essentially. So it's very possible. I just noted that that seems pricey. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like metal is a good. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, and then nothing particularly like stuck out to me here, except that, you know, she's kind of feeling guilty for her looting activities still. Yeah. The, in a few characters get introduced. Doug Douglas Everett, who is an African-American man who is also a campaign contributor to one of the po local politicians. He's kind of an influential guy and he's also one of Faye's best customers right. and he owns a museum. <laughs> yep. So the whole time I was reading this, I was thinking back to our previous book, like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, then we cut back to the students out on Sea Green Island. They finished their task the night before. They woke up and there's uh, some foreboding comments from the, I guess, the narrator in this about where they placed their flags the night before. They get up the next morning and they realize their flags are off and they have to go and fix them, which I thought was a little interesting because if you put them in with a total 
total station and someone messed with them, even if they tried to set them all off evenly, the total station's accurate enough. I think you would know that something was odd there, probably. Yeah. Right? Like, there's no way they would get them moved precisely enough to not be obvious. Yeah. I wonder. I don't know... If- 100%. And these are students, I guess. You could think of it that way, too. But they, they fix the total station, and they decide to start digging, show their professor they're keen, basically. And gunshots ring out, and they drop to the ground, which... I noted at the time is definitely trying to imply they've been shot, but also explicitly is not that they've been shot. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're out there and you hear gunshots, you drop to the ground either way. Yeah. And I, I just had to laugh because having done so much work in this area, I was like, oh, archaeologists getting shot at. That's not. Or going off nearby, you know, <laughs> yeah. hunters, but you never know. Right. I feel like we need to just like describe what a total station is. Oh, yeah. Well, you've probably seen them by road crews. Yeah, they're they're the things, little tripod things that you use for mapping. You'll see surveyors on the side of the road using them. That's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That, that That's what that's called. And they'll it? usually have another person with a pole and a prism yeah. on that pole. And they're putting in points very extremely accurately yeah, that way. Super accurate. Done properly anyway. Yeah, yeah, done properly. So that's what we're talking about when we say total station. Yes. I just realized Good. not everybody. Good <laughs> call. That yes. Is. Yes. So we cut back to Faye. And we talk a little bit more about establish that she doesn't have electricity or refrigeration on the island and kind of the situation. And she arrives on the island on her boat. On her little boat. Right. Apparently she has two boats. This is her little like skiff, I guess. Yep. And already it's crawling with reporters and politicians because there's a politician out there that day basically campaigning to save the island on the surface at least. But ultimately... Everyone pretty much knows he's campaigning to get office in Washington, D.C. Right, yeah. So he is a a local Florida senator. And he wants to become like a congressman or right. something, yeah. And and I think you mentioned to me how unique it was for him to be environmentally conscious. Right, yeah. <laughs> Although it's pretty well established that, you know, that's partly a tool in his case. Yes, but yeah. the idea that being environmentally conscious would get you more votes in Florida is also kind of... Laughable. Laughable, yes. <laughs> So we we appreciate the fiction. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also see Douglas Everett, which you mentioned earlier. But Faye, of course, is not wanting to talk to her best client with all the reporters and all the other archaeologists around. So yeah. she avoids interacting with him then. Okay, uh, so then we start into chapter three and we get an introduction to Dr. Magda Stockard, her professor, and she's in a bit of a state because the students that they left overnight aren't present on the island. And Faye kind of talks her down, I guess. You know, like they're kids. They probably went in to get breakfast somewhere. They'll be yeah. back. Um, which is probably not unreasonable considering like, why would you think anything had happened, right? Right. Yeah. They're on an island. You would think, well, they're kind of secluded. What could happen? Right. She does note that she being older and kind of more world experienced than the other students has been kind of put in a position of middle management or semi-leadership. They note that even though they're all entry-level minimum wage, which is interesting because this is a field school, I think. It doesn't specify. I don't know if it's a field school or if maybe, I know some universities will take contracts like CRM contracts Mm -hmm. and things like that. These are all students except for Faye. Yeah, yeah. So So the fact that they're paying all their students is nice. Yeah. It's unusual. Again, fiction, no. (laughs) Yeah, so for for record... um, Uh, So if folks know, uh, field school is basically a class that's typical in archaeology. You can think of it as 
kind of an unpaid apprenticeship, I guess. Yeah. It's usually during the summer and students pay for the class like normal and then you work like you're working a job. So there's been a lot of talk about trying to restructure that because that is kind of inaccessible to some people. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially you're working a full-time job as a class. An intense job. And too, yeah. so a lot of students who say might need to work over the summer right. or, you know, have rent to pay, things of that nature, it makes it more difficult for them to be able to take field school. Well, because... even if they don't, for the amount of work being asked of them, it's a little unfair to yeah, not. Yeah, there's schools now and organizations now that are offering different style field schools to help make it more accessible. Our colleague, in fact, organizes some of this stuff in South Florida. Yeah, professor here locally at FSU is trying to do field schools during the regular semester as a regular class rather than having it be this super intense 40 hours a week thing mm -hmm. over the summer. 40 plus. Yeah, yeah, have it be more of a you come out for a couple hours like you would a regular class, have it during the school year so that people, if they need to go away for the summer or need to get a job for the summer, whatever it may be, they still have those opportunities. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's field school is required. And I get why a lot of jobs want it, even though, frankly, I feel like it's often overestimated how good many of them are. Right. Yeah. Many of them are very, very poor in yeah. teaching basic skills. You know, without that, definitely they don't have they certainly don't have the skills. Right. Yeah. And there are a lot of skills and, and methods in the excavation that you know you have to learn. Yep. Yeah. I often joke it's where we go to school to learn how to dig. Right. <laughs> And people are like, what? <laughs> but we dig very, very particularly. Yep. We get a uh, kind of a description of Senator Kirby, the, the senator again. And then we move back to a bit more talk about archaeology. I really appreciated how the author kind of, you know, everybody thinks archaeology is just kind of digging in the dirt or they think that we're out there with paintbrushes doing like, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, from the start, very detailed right. things. And she does a good job of kind of explaining how there's different types of tasks in archaeology. There's the person, I mean, some archaeologists even have used backhoes. You know, you have to be really, really good at operating the backhoe, but you it's possible. But then certain conditions for backhoes, yeah, particularly yeah. just so I can jump in a little bit because it, you'll hear like looters using them too, but this is very different. Typically backhoes I've seen used when there's been a lot of erosion from a hill. So we know by uh, testing mm -hmm. that there is like a foot of stuff that's filled in on top. So we'll often have the backhoe just scrape off that first foot because we know that there's no archaeology. Yeah, and I've seen there. it used for like um, when you're trying to get at the level to see the features of like a structure or a ditch and things like that. It's good at kind of scraping off very level. And a skilled backhoe operator is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like they will hit a pebble and they'll know and they'll stop and say, hey, there's something in there. Right, and it's just yeah. A pebble, but that's that's what it was. It's a, it's fascinating. Yeah, and so there's work like that. Then there is also that very detailed, you know, scrubbing small artifacts with toothbrushes and using toothpicks. Feature and, excavation is a yeah, big one. Feature yeah, feature excavation. I mean, I used to keep a kitchen spoon in my mm -hmm. field pack. Uh, she does a really good job of just kind of putting it out there that there's different tasks. To a wide be done. variety of tasks. Yeah. A wide variety of skills. Yeah, it really is quite a lot of different things. I mean, there's archaeologists that don't go into the field. They work their entire career in a lab, right. you know? We're so, talking to people on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> archaeology is a, a really varied. There's a lot of aspects to it. Yeah. Digging is one small piece of it. Right. Apparently, we overhear that Everett tried to solicit artifacts from the crew, to which I just kind of said, oh, man. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that is not the time and the place to, I mean, it shouldn't ever be, but also like, wow. And like the justification that it's, that it's okay that the museum has these looted artifacts because of all the good that the museum is doing. And, you know, I kept calling back to our previous book and it's like, well... <sighs> That's not really a good justification in some ways. It was, it felt like it had a little more legs than some of the justifications in the previous book because that was someone else's culture and who are you benefiting and this is just art. Whereas this is intended to talk about a subject. Not that it's, I'm still not, we'll get to that. I'm still, this is not a great way of going about it. Yeah. But I can see that there is a distinction between those, but it's not a huge one probably. Yeah. But also when you're on the site is not the time to go around asking all of the archaeologists if they're willing to sell you anything. I know. Because then they all know like what a way to, if any of them did do it, then you're just setting them up. It's just not being a good criminal. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. I also thought the part where Faye was recalling how some of the students were privileged. Yeah. She was not. And it kind of falls back to like what we were talking about with the field school situation. You know, like she mentions one of, one of the students drove away in her BMW. Right. And it was funny because I can remember in undergrad there being those students. Well, and to some degree, I mean, to Faye, I think you and I would be those students. Yeah, too. most definitely. I mean, we, could, we, we both went to field school. We both could afford Our to go Archaeology yeah. has a long history of being the gentleman's pursuit, being mm -hmm. for the rich people, being for the privileged. Yeah, there's a there's a bar to entry. Right. And there is a, a strong effort in the last maybe even last five years, I'd say, to change that situation. Yeah. But it is a work in progress. Yeah, for sure. But uh, getting back to kind of the plot here. So they're, I guess, looking around the island, looking for these students. And it, it seems kind of chaotic because, you know, you have the news crews and the politician and the museum guy and all these students kind of roaming around and you realize, oh, my gosh, students are missing. And the chapter, I guess, pretty much ends with, you know, they initially thought, OK, they must have gone to the mainland to get breakfast or something, but they find their boat, mm -hmm. but they don't find them. Right. And of course, the reporters on hand to spot Faye discovering the boat right away. But So, yeah, they found the boat, but not the people, which is a kind of a, a bunch of kind of scary prospects. Then. Yeah. So that is where that chapter ends. Moving on to chapter four. Basically, yes, they've discovered that the students are missing and they form search parties. They decide that they're as good as the sheriff's department in finding a crime scene, which is not the best decision making, I don't think still. I mean, right. I'm sure. I mean, I know you and I equate archaeology techniques to crime scene analysis, but we are not crime scene analysts. <laughs> like. <laughs> As we'll find when certain things are found. Yeah. So they start, they send out the students to try and find them. Faye decides that she's going to look at where they were assigned to be working the night before. And she uncovers the, the bodies. Yeah. And instead of stopping as soon as she found the one, she undercovers the other one. And I'm like, so this is why you need the sheriff off out and there. And like the whole time, the news reporters there, like trying to snap photos. So and they, then, they cover um, the faces, but yeah, it's like you should have stopped at one. It was just, it's the whole way it was done. Like Magda, it's like took off her shirt to cover too, them. And, uh, yeah. It's like, you, you just, just stop and get the right. sheriff. <laughs> yeah. I, and I get it. It's pretty traumatic. You might not be thinking clearly, but yeah. I'm like, this is why you wanted the professionals. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Like, I feel like with our skills, 
skills we could assist, but we definitely shouldn't be in charge. Yeah. And I mean, we could assist, but with chain of custody and things like that, in reality, we wouldn't be allowed to and they wouldn't want us to. So, yeah, it's kind of silly. But that's the main hullabaloo for uh, chapter four. Right. Chapter five. Sheriff is out there now and they've been doing searches essentially. Yeah, they kind of, you know, want your typical crime scene investigation. They want to talk to everybody and Faye's nervous because she doesn't want them looking on her boat because right. she has artifacts that she looted, which I mean, yeah, but I think the cops would have more other priorities right now. I don't even know that they would actually notice that, but I I guess that, that could be something they put together later. Yeah. Um, but they I guess they took the all the witnesses back off the yeah. island and there oh and there's also like a I guess a local character. Yeah, they're in Wally's, the local marina slash grill slash everything. Yeah. <laughs> Which does fit with a community of it that size in Panhandle. Fit, yeah. yeah. Um, the one stop shop. She spots a man who doesn't seem interested in the hullabaloo at the marina. And she, and we'll find out eventually, the professor suspects this man. This man's name is Nguyen, I think is the way it's pronounced. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to pronounce that. <laughs> and no more is given at this time except that he needs to go. From his perspective, he needs to go and dismantle his work site. So is definitely the left open that he could be somehow involved in this. Yeah. yeah. Then then we go to your your man, Stuart Sheffield. He just seems like I feel like every coastal town in Florida has a guy like this. Yes, but not necessarily like this. This man is also a hitman. Well, yeah, but just the way he's like portrayed as like this guy who kind of lives in a rundown trailer, garbage, and I assume probably like car parts and stuff. And he just kind of sits and drinks beer out on his porch and people complain because he's bringing down the property value. Right. And he kind of enjoys that. Yeah. 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 And this is where you learn, I, I thought it was funny because they talk about the Panacea Palace Hotel, which Panacea is a real place yes. in this area. Which is a little odd because so much of this is fictionalized and Panacea and Tallahassee are both actual places. Yeah, and she makes it seem like Panacea is a lot bigger than it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like the description of the Panacea me- Metropolitan Metropol- Panacea. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, like, Panacea has nothing that can be remotely no, this considered is a teeny, metropolitan. This is a little town. And Magda lives in Tallahassee. And so she's kind of, I guess, traveling back and forth. But I guess there is also a place down there that they rent for people to stay at, which is possible. And there's also like in real life, there's like the FSU Marine Lab and stuff is down there. And there are places designed for researchers researchers. to rent. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So yeah, it seems plausible. Oh, we didn't add that Stuart Sheffield, the hitman, has a job. Oh. That he needs to go and kill a man with a ponytail and a boy. Yeah. And that's all we know at this point. That's all we know so far. (laughs) But then this is where they kind of get into how Faye quit school and helped her mom and her grandma out and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But she was also drowning. In addition to trying to pay the property tax, she also had medical debt and things like that from when she was caring for her mother. And that's why she couldn't do school, essentially. Yep. Oh, and then she ends up staying with the professor in the rental trailer, yeah. basically. And it's also important to note that it comes into play later, but Faye gives her official address as Wally's Marina. Yeah. And she has another boat called the Gopher, which is a little a bigger, bit bigger, but still not something you could live comfortably on. No one seems on. to believe that she actually lives on yeah, it. Yeah, but it's like nobody presses the issue. Right. Which, I mean, kind of fits like the panhandle, too. Like, you just kind of let people mind their own business for the most part. Stuart is doing his hitman thing, looking 
for his target, and that's about all. He passes by Fade Magda, but it's not notable at this point, at yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. We get a little bit about of Magda's thoughts about Faye. Yeah. And Magda pressing her on some of the answers we've talked about, but also um, some inf- insight into how she views Faye, like uh, Faye is, was her best student. She's very frustrated with how it's turned out for Faye, I guess. Yeah, like she helps her out by getting like library books for her and right. things like or that. Or just gives her some of her old journals, which yeah. is a thing professors definitely yep. did. Yep. Definitely not a thing anymore because it's all online now. I know. But, <laughs> and then I noted that Faye, and this comes up at least one other time, Faye is very, very good at deflecting questions. Yes. Yeah. Like she's very good. So like Magda's kind of pressing her on, on her living situation, I think. And she just kind of deflects it and shoots a question back at her, then turns on the TV. Yep. And I'm like, hmm, that's yeah, she's very good at that. On the, the next chapter, they go back to Wally's the next day and find the character they Faye noted the day before. Magda has actually run into him before. Yes. And in both cases, they had a situation where one of the crew was caught stealing artifacts in both of these other situations. He was never implicated, but the fact that he's shown up in several times instances, yeah, where... makes him pretty suspect. And I think that's worth bringing up. They report him, but they do... Please find that he has an alibi. So there's nothing to go off of there. Right. I do love the fact that it, it's the Miko County Sheriff's, like, or Miko County is yeah. the county, I guess, for Miccosukee is what I was. I looked it up, too. There is a Miko, Florida, but that's over on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's one of those things you can kind of see, find where the name comes from, but definitely isn't a real place, like intentional. They go back to the island expecting to work, which honestly, I don't know why they would. Right, yeah. And the police are like, no, you're not going to work. We're, we've got investigation to do here. Yeah, I feel like that was weird because in reality, I feel like or at least you would have communication with the sheriff and they would called and asked. Right. Yeah. Before going all the way out there. So they're out there. And at this point, Joe Wolfman Tooth shows up and he's apparently quite a hunk. We yes. hadn't quite gotten that from <laughs> Faye's perspective before, but everyone is basically Ooh, drooling. and aahing over yes. Joe. And he's quite upset and agitated that, you know, she didn't let him know that she was okay. Yeah. And Faye is, I guess, she, you know, usually took her boat to go back to Joyeuse, but didn't. And so she didn't show up and he didn't know where she was. And they, they don't, don't have, have a phone. A, yeah, yeah, they don't have a TV. They don't have a phone. He had no idea what was going on. Right. And that'll be important because Sheriff McKenzie notes the man with the temper and the stranger and all that stuff. Yeah. So he immediately becomes a potential suspect. Um, We find out that Joe showed up at Joyeuse four months ago and she just kind of let him stay. He has, I guess, limitations be a way of putting that. He has some things he can't really seem to understand and some things he understands very well. Yeah. And they kind of use that as like... It, to me, it almost feels like the author's trying to describe him as like a man who should live in another time well, period. Well, ex- explicitly says that. Yeah. And it's just, um, again, kind of falling into that kind of stereotype or feels trope like or it, whatever. Yeah. yeah. He's good at hunting and fishing, but he can't figure out an ATM machine. Right. You yeah. Know, that kind of thing. It's, yeah. And it's like, hmm. So, yes, Sheriff McKenzie notes Joe, and at this point, he sees his deputy running towards him, and the idiot, I guess, blurts out that they found a campsite nearby from the day before, Um, and everyone knows it now. Yeah, law enforcement is not portrayed as... uh super all that together in some ways in this book (laughs) yeah they don't seem the worst either no they're just kind of very human i guess yeah very it's like the small town sheriff kind of reminds me a little 
if this is relevant to our, our listeners of the sheriff in Stranger Things, the sheriff department there. Yeah. They're not super equipped to deal with this sort of thing. Yeah, this isn't something that happens. Right. And so they're a little over their heads, doing the best they can. So Faye makes it back to Joyeuse and is digging on her property for a change. And I'm a little, like I said before, I'm not sure why she wasn't doing that to begin with. You got to find a variety of artifacts to sell Tristan. I suppose. <laughs> And she thinks about friendships. We know here we find out that she considers Joe and Wally of the Wally of the Marina both very close friends. A little bit more about her racial identity and how that bothers her. Well, she worries a little bit too that if the the murders were motivated by like artifact looting, her property could become a target as well. Yeah, she also worries that if you know she had been approached first for selling the artifacts, she might have sold to him, and that might have. I'm not sure if that means she's worried that she would have sold to a potential killer, or if she could have saved their lives potentially. I'm not, yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily needs to be defined in you know this kind of situation. You don't emotions and logic are not always yeah. there. And then we end once again with an excerpt from the journal from William William Whitehall William Whitehall's journal. Essentially, I'm going to just kind of summarize this real quick. I think he's his daughter's 16 and he's concerned about finding her a appropriate husband. His wife is Creek mm-hmm. or at least French and Creek. I'm not sure which. Yeah. Um, which means finding a husband for his daughter in a white dominated society is difficult, especially in, I think they're in a very rural place at this point, but not a joy use yet. And then a natural scientist shows up, basically woos everybody but his wife and leaves having stolen their horse. I thought it was funny too, because the horse was in Appaloosa, which if you're familiar with Florida State University, um, their mascot is Chief Osceola and the horse is Renegade and Renegade is in Appaloosa. So I was like, oh, there we go. More inspiration. Yep. <laughs> and they're yep. in Tallahassee. I think pretty much uh, this person professor is from FSU, but... So, yeah, he's there in this point in the journal as well. Next up, we're back at Wally's Marina, and we see that Faye is very comfortable there, like we observed last time that she considers him a close friend, so she's very comfortable in his place. And she's all dressed up. Also, it's revealed that he has some things from his divorce stored out at her place. Yeah. That's, but we seems don't know like what those important. things are, and it's a little mysterious. It's definitely implied that she doesn't think it's anything important. Right, yeah. Just stuff that he needed to store yeah but it later becomes clear that there's something more there than Mm -hmm. than she knows is going on yeah she and wally give each other crap would be uncomfortable but you know close friends give each other crap this way kind of could be how that relationship goes and then she's off to tallahassee to do some research on the body she found and to meet with the senator yeah and she's i guess meeting with the senator to discuss her property mm-hmm. essentially and issues relating to like her right being able to afford the property first though she goes to the library and she does her research on old newspapers by going through microfilm which i'm glad we don't have to do that anymore yeah me too it was not a very fun way of doing research no i don't know that i can describe that appropriately so if you don't know what microfilm is, I suggest just doing a Google for it. Uh, you'll get an idea of how it worked. It was not a very... Not efficient. Not efficient. Very time consuming. Yeah. It's not like now where you can search a specific word or right. something and you had to go through everything to find what you were looking for. And you for. couldn't flip through. You had to scroll through and you had to do it at the right speed so you can keep... You know, it was, it was just Ooh, not the best. It was the worst. But she
she finds the likely name of the person, Abigail Wilford, uh, went missing in 1964 and was never found. Uh, 18-year-old daughter of the richest man in Miko County. Uh, this is another one where I, I noted that it's odd that she's making up the county name, but Panacea, you know, is is an yeah. actual place. So I'm not sure. It's interesting. The metropolis of Panacea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there's kind of not a lot of revealed here, except she thinks it's definitely the person. They do show the face, but she notes they crop the ears off so, so she can't, can't see, see if, if she's wearing the same earrings. Mm -hmm. I did note that, you know, earrings do change, but apparently these were her customary jewelry if yeah. it is the person, of course. Yeah. So that's about all we have on that right now. But she's printed off a whole bunch of articles to look through later, essentially. Then we go to our meeting with the senator. And here's where we learn, like, a lot of what she knows about her history or property's history is kind of passed down through oral tradition. She doesn't have a deed that shows how the pa house passed down to her. Well, she has the house. She I don't has... think there's any question about the house. The question is about some of the surrounding yeah. islands that have changed. and Some of them are now, I guess, on federal property. Or too. unowned even. Yeah. Like. And so she has like no birth records for people who would have owned it. It's really hard to kind of establish. Well, and she ownership. points out why she would have no birth records. Right, right. Because right. the uh -huh. person who inherited it was the daughter of the plantation owner and one of his slaves. Right. Yeah. I mean, she can tell like it was continually occupied. Mm -hmm. That's about And it. essentially some of these islands were taken away by white men in the, I think the said the 30s, I think. 30s that wanted it. And, you know, without the proper documentation and her not being white and a woman, it was very easy to just take it away from her, essentially. Yeah. So like the senator she met with is like, okay, interesting. And it, it kind of... To me, it sounds very realistic the way the senator kind of responded, like, well, thank you for meeting with me. Yeah. Kind of just get almost brushed off and you're not sure if the senator is actually going to take any action or not, which right. I've left meetings with like legislators feeling that way. Like, well, I don't know how it went. <laughs> right. I like how how the author described the Capitol building as well as a warren of legislative offices. Like that is 100% yeah, it's, what that feels like. Well, and I also thought it was interesting how they talk about how she like dressed up and how, Faye mentions how the women of the Capitol were dressed. And, you know, we have a colleague who's gone to the Capitol with us and she calls it Capitol chic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is some, it is weird. There is like a way people that work at the Capitol dress. Well, and the observation about this quality clothing is the lobbyist this quality clothing is the employees of the senators yeah you know like yeah yeah 100 yeah so the meeting ends we jump back to joe wolf mantooth again which i note was napping flint which for one for the record this is a minor thing but we have to say it there is no flint in florida flint is a specific type of stone but flint napping is still the the tech the yeah. method of making stone tools but he's also and it's also modern times he could have gone to one of those rock shows and gotten some right. <laughs> you know whatever right but there those are, are people <laughs> there are people who have this skill today yeah it does describe him seeking out this skill yeah yeah interestingly he's out there alone at this point and wally shows up yeah that was interesting yeah so we're not meant to know what's going on here yet yeah it's very it's one of those 
situations where Wally shows up, but he didn't expect Joe to be there. And Joe was like, who are you? And it was uh, you could tell Wally did not want he, he was coming, I guess, to like look at the stuff he's left on property or, or whatever. Was looking for Faye. Yeah. I'm but, not sure which. Yeah. No, he would have known she wasn't there. But it was just because he knew she left for the Capitol. Yeah, I think okay, it had something yeah. to do with his stuff that she's storing oh, for right. him. But and you could tell he was caught off guard by somebody being on uh, on the property and you could tell he did not want somebody be on property he wanted to do whatever he was doing alone right and so he skedaddles yep and joe doesn't think a whole bunch about it yeah so next chapter Faye arrives at the museum of american slavery which is the museum run by douglas everett and she's there to make a sale and so it lists off all of the artifacts that she's brought to sell and he rejects all the things that are luxury items because they don't have provenience don't know proof that they were involved with enslaved people mm-hmm. and i noted that every single thing as you said earlier is not not that unusual stuff. And every single thing here, he could just as easily have borrowed for free. Yeah. He could have gotten this just as easily and they would have come with provenience. Yeah. So yeah. this, it just strikes me as there. how entirely unnecessary this is. There are collections of this stuff that is in existence with context that you can get a museum loan for. <laughs> and the state, with at least state collections, wants to loan their things yeah, out. Because yeah. they want these things to be utilized um, and to have a place. They don't have a space for all of this, like we talked about before, too. But he like she does try and make the case that he could create a display on the white mistress. And she talks about how, you know, even white women of that time were a lesser class than, you know, the white men. And you could talk about how, you know, she was kind of the one who ran the show, essentially, in some ways and was there to, you know, if somebody was sick, she cared for them. If somebody needs something, she tried to get it for them or whatever. And she makes a decent case for that having a place that he makes a good case that there's this requires more space than they have to cover this topic. Right. Yeah. But like, it's just the whole thing is like kind of a joke to me because I'm like, it's a looted item with no context. So you're right. just kind of making stuff you're up. Just making it up. <laughs> yeah. This is true. Yeah. And this comes up particularly when she has some very fine combs that she wants to sell him because she's really trying to get that money. He recognizes kind of her desperation. Yeah. And hopefully, at least being a good guy, he says, keep the combs, but I'll pay your asking price for the rest of it. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see on motivations. This is a murder mystery. But so far, despite the fact that he buys looted artifacts for his museum, um, he seems like a decent enough guy. Yeah. A bit paternal, I guess, is, is revealed, which isn't necessarily the end of the world either. No. And I, I think also you have to keep in mind he's African-American. So I think he might empathize with her a little bit on that front, just kind of being a minority in that well, area. Coming from poverty himself, yeah. too. He, he says they, they lay out his background a bit. Yeah. We find when Faye returns to Wally's place that a tax inspector has arrived and he managed to delay the tax inspector for a day to give her time to prepare her place. So the, essentially the crux here is that if she's known to be living at the property, she has to pay more taxes. Right. And if it's seen as kind of a unlivable situation she doesn't have to and if pay. it's dilapidated unused then it or less taxes i yes. think is the thing and you know she even though it's not in pristine condition she has in fact done what she can to make it livable right and she is living there yeah so and i don't know taxes enough to know if it, how accurate all this is right but this yeah is, but this if is you what's are presented t- to us if yeah. you are a tax person let us know let us know if this is plausible <laughs> yeah um and then we finish with going back to the senator who comes off as skeezy yeah 
I was like, maybe this isn't that skeezy. No, this is skeezy. Yeah, like, what is it? At least once in his life, every man should get a chance to rescue a fair maiden in distress. Because yeah. he was, I guess later on, he was kind of thinking more about her plight. And part of me thinks, okay, this is just like a senator seeing an opportunity to help someone to, you know, win a few votes or whatever. But the way... Which is one thing, but then it's also i mean both ways it's skeezy it is but one thing is his job the other one is him being just being a creep yeah i mean yeah <laughs> he's yeah. being a creep not okay yeah not okay we'll see how that plays out i suppose mm -hmm. so next up we come to Faye, who has had a very busy day with everything that we heard about in the last one and she returns home to try and prepare her house to look unlivable <laughs> I, I, I kind of enjoy that because I'm trying to picture like having to live like that. Right. Like you're living there, but you can't make it look like you're living there. Joe at one point was talking about like putting in a garden, but she didn't want to clear a space and have like this nice, neat row garden. So she kind of was like, you can go plant stuff off in the woods, but don't make it look like like it it's a garden. And then I guess even the entrance, like where she parks her boat is pretty much overgrown right. and like all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, that would really, a I don't know, of, I could live like that. A lot of work to make it look like you don't live there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so at the end of the day, she is eating dinner with joe who collects a lot of forages a lot of their food i guess and cooks for her yes and there's did you catch oh the... yes yes your favorite subject <gasps> that is 100 percent accurate <sighs> so it's been probably about a year since we talked about the black drink yes and last time we talked about it i think it was actually handled pretty accurately how did they do this time barbara so it wasn't ex so Elix vomitoria is a holly that grows native to Florida and it has it's the only native plant with caffeine. And when Native Americans drank it in a ceremonial context, black drink, which a lot of you may have heard of, they would vomit. But it wasn't because of the plant. It was because of everything else involved in what they were doing, fasting, dancing, all that stuff. And they didn't outright say in this book that like it makes you vomit, but it was kind of like insinuated. Uh, I think it was more than insinuated. It wasn't, you're right, it wasn't a very extremely direct. Right. But it was basically direct. Yeah. Yeah. But it does not. Um, if you've been to the Outer Banks of North Carolina and you've drank Casina, you have had the same stuff and you didn't vomit, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> if you did, it wasn't because of the drink. Maybe it was because you didn't like the drink or whatever. But it's just a tea. It's literally it's just also described a tea. as noxious. It's not. No, it's. It's, it's quite tasty, yeah, frankly. Yeah, it's tasty. You can add yeah. honey to it, sugar, cream. I like it just, it's just by itself. Fine. It's yeah. kind of like any black so, tea or whatever. Yep. But yes. It also. Oh, sorry, were you done? No, I'm done okay. with my rant. Okay. It also describes the ritual he has for dealing with burials. Again, I don't have anything to add to this. I don't have enough to know where all this comes from. And I will say she's kind of vague in what it, he's doing. It like, is also implied with his history that he actually grew up in Oklahoma, traveled by foot to Georgia, and... Somehow ended up in... Yeah, and basically he's been... Faye says in the book that he's kind of cobbled some of the stuff together from a yeah. bunch of different people. Which I, I can see as being fairly accurate for right. someone who is 
in that position. And I did. This is when I kind of started getting really interested in Joe because it's like, I want to know more about him. You know, I'm I'm intrigued by Joe. He's he's a much more interesting character than initially. Yeah. 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 And we get into how uh, Douglas Everett got his name. Right. His um, actual first name is Frederick without the second E. Yeah. So he was named after Frederick Douglas, but incorrectly. Right. Um, Spelled, which we see that kind of thing historically. Yeah. Yeah. We see it on on tombstones. And frankly, those are some of my favorites. Yeah. And then we get into uh, the chapter kind of ends again with the story. Well, before we get to that, we find out that he knew Abby, the woman who was murdered. Yeah. Or missing, missing. But we know when I was murdered. And he was. He there's also some implication when the sheriff was there the day before at the island for the recent murders, he felt fear of being accused again, which again is suggesting at this point that he was accused of Abby's murder or disappearance in the past. Yeah. And we'll find out later that this actually was what happened. Yeah. But then the chapter ends again with an excerpt from uh, William Whitehall's journal. This is where we learn about the Appaloosa being stolen. Um, The naturalist, he thought the naturalist wanted to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage and he was like oh it's gonna be great or whatever but he didn't he just wanted a horse right <laughs> the appaloosa <laughs> they're, on, they're one of their only horses like they couldn't part yeah. with it basically he yeah knew, and he should have known that and, and i thought it was interesting because i'm a horse person and appaloosa i don't think would have been a very common horse to have around these parts in um the 1800s well, they weren't on Joyous at this point. No, I know, but okay. like even anywhere in Florida, these were those are horses well, out west. I don't know that they were in Florida. They were on some kind of frontier situation, but it's not very clear where they are at this point. See, to me, it made it seem like they were living on the mainland, but they wanted to buy the island. I to me, it still seems like he's in Florida. Sense that the trip to the island was a pretty big move. Mm, see, I got the opposite. They sold everything, and then they. Then they moved and they had to load up the wagon and everything. Hmm. That'll be interesting to find out because, yeah, yeah, Appaloosas were not very common in this part. Those horses you find out west. Right. So. Okay. I did not. That's interesting. We'll have to see how that. It could be that they came from out west to here. Maybe. Is how you might look at that. But I'm not sure it was explicitly said either way. Yeah. Okay. And I think importantly, too. I also, you know, because he's French, he's a naturalist. I feel like they always came to the southeast. But that's just me and I live in the Southeast and that might just be my bias. But yeah. And of course, this is historical fiction. Right. Or, hi- or just fiction. fiction. Yeah. 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 So I don't know on any of that either. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Yeah. If we ever get an answer to that. But that's OK. I think we're going to. So basically, at the end, they do get a ring from the naturalist and a letter basically apologizing for leaving and stealing the horse to the daughter. And the daughter is carrying the naturalist child. And so the plan then is for them to pack up and move to the island uh, on the frontier explicitly. I think it's pretty explicitly said they're moving to the more of a frontier area where in a few years she can claim to be a widow credibly. Yeah. So that way she still kind of keeps her Mm, reputation. I don't know what you would call it, but she wouldn't be seen as you know, being uh, pregnant out of wedlock or whatever. So then (laughs) chapter 10. (laughs) Our last one for today. Yeah, my heart just hurts for Faye because like we've said, the tax assessor's coming and 
Uh, she has to pretty much undo selectively all of that she's done to make that house look livable. And I do like the fact that as she's going through, she's um, very selective in what she damages. Uh, like she looks at the uh, windows and she only breaks the glass that is not original to the house. Right. And she makes sure she breaks it from the outside in. Well, that way it looks more messy on the inside, I think was the idea. Well, and that way it looks like vandalism, people okay. breaking things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've watched a lot of crime scene yeah. movies where and it's always the window glass and she removes <laughs> certain pegs from doors and shutters so they yeah. hang askew there's the murals on the ceilings i think in the bedrooms that she has she learned from her mom or her grandmom how to clean mm -hmm. and she's really worried that if the tax assessor sees that it's going to be her undoing well yeah and then she's like kept really taking care of those rooms it's going to be very obvious yeah so she you know it's not like the murals are falling apart they've been clean she's been cleaning right. them and maintaining there's no way them. she's gonna so she that. she like everything she does is kind of I, it to me it seems like that game of mousetrap <laughs> it's like home alone only with yeah. like traps that will kill you it's more just traps like Ugh, and you yeah leave. like she makes the <laughs> stairs look unstable uh -huh. she takes out some of the railings and she stuff she uses brown paint to simulate water damage yeah stains and stuff yeah and so she's doing everything she can to prevent the tax assessor from number one wanting to go in the house but if she does go in the house wanting to go up the stairs because she doesn't want her getting to the bedrooms how does she finally stop her from getting to the bedroom barbara Ugh, or <laughs> this blows my mind because i'm like you have to live there after yeah, this. yeah so the woman the tax inspector tax assessor does come in she does start going up the steps this, she's and she thought she was going to see a tax assessor who was like dressed in a suit and tie but this is a i guess it's a female also, tax assessor why is there just one person i don't that know that does not seem like a good way of <laughs> right. approaching an abandoned property presumably abandoned property right no thank you but the woman comes up in a boat and she's she's dressed for the field she jumps out of the boat and you know into knee deep water doesn't even like take a second to think about it and she's just traipsing into the house she goes up the stairs and phase at this time in the cupola kind of hides up there and she's like oh no <laughs> oh no the woman goes up the stairs and uh phase starting to panic a little bit and she has one last like trick up her sleeve she had joe urinate i guess in the upstairs probably landing or whatever yeah. And that was the undoing of this inspector. Apparently, she runs out of the house. Yeah, I'm like, you've made it that far. Because she even had like blankets that she placed underneath the brown paint spots. And they're wet. That so were wet smelly and, and smelly. Yeah. And yeah. she did everything she could. But that was the undoing of the inspector, which I found kind of like. Well, I mean. I don't know. Yeah. But then like you noted, you don't just clean that up and the smell goes away. Right. Yeah. I was like, man, that's dedication right there, Faye. Yeah. <laughs> Next level. So Faye is in the cupola. The tax assessor has started out the building. We don't know what the tax assessor is going to say as far as its livability and its tax value. But, you know, remember phase up in this cupola. She what is exactly is a cupola, by the way. Do it's, you know? Yeah, it's the when you look at like old plantation houses or old fancy houses, the little it almost to me, it always looks like a bird feeder, like the little part up in the top. It's usually round, sometimes might have like a widow's walk above it or okay. around it. A lot of times it's I think it was for ventilation mostly, but also storage. And I'm sure people went up there to get out onto the widow's walk or whatever. 
Um, but it's just like a little upstairs, usually the highest peak in the house. I'd have to look up the definition with, you know, the architectural definition, but it's a little tiny room upstairs. And she, I guess, had pulled up the door to the cupola. Like it probably was like a floor door, like a basement door kind of situation. And it's stuck. Yeah. <laughs> Which it seems like that happened really fast. I feel like it would have taken longer. I don't know how long that tax assessor was there, but it didn't seem like long enough for that. I got an impression it was like extremely well fitting yeah. before, which I guess could make sense. A small change could basically Maybe. get it stick. I don't, I don't know. But like if it's in Florida, it's humid all the time. Like true. it's not like the humidity is going to change that drastically in a matter of what, like maybe half an hour or whatever it took the tax assessor. But anyway, she's stuck up there. And while she's stuck up there, she starts kind of going through this box of old stuff. Um, and it's interesting because I was in a at another plantation house in Tallahassee and they had found a bunch of trunks up in their cupola and basement. This is Goodwood. And they mm-hmm. did, ended up doing a display on all the dresses. But I went up into the cupola and I just can't imagine even like hanging out up there. It got hot really fast yeah, because all the heat from the house rises. And yeah, but she's like going through this box and she finds some depression era dresses and she's like, yeah, those aren't old enough for me, which I was like, <laughs> oh, here we go. This isn't real history or archaeology or whatever. Um, you know, because they're not old enough, which they most definitely are of historic value. But then she finds a... Cl- well, I think she wasn't looking at this as an archaeologist or historian either. She was looking at it as someone looking for things to sell. That's true. And but then, I would be curious about how much money you can make off of Depression era dresses if they're in good shape. I don't know, but I'm not going to look it up. I feel like you could probably <laughs> sell those on It'd eBay. make me sad. But... She did find a Clovis point in yes. the old storage chest. Which is quite a mysterious thing because that would have not been a Clovis person that left it there. Right. Yes. And so I love, she's like, you know, could this have been brought here from someone who collected it elsewhere or was this from a site nearby? Well, good question. We'll never know because somebody took it out of its context. Right. And someone <laughs> else is looting the heck out of it. So not doing actual proper archaeology. Right. So if you do find it, you'll never know. Right. She ends up, I guess, she, I love this. She wraps the artifact in like one of the historic dresses. And I was like, gosh, darn it. As someone who loves like historic textiles, I was like, no, don't do that. (laughs) But she did it. She wrapped up the um, Clovis point. A Clovis point is named one of the oldest style projectile points, what most people would call arrowheads, but it's too big to be an arrowhead. It's a spear point. I thought I found this is interesting because some of the earliest evidence for human occupation in Florida is also in this relative area that she's speaking about. So I'm wondering if she was influenced by like the Paige Ladson site and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyways... <sighs> She climbs out the window. <laughs> she was like, yeah, it's not painted shut, which I feel like is I mean, we our office is in a historic building and neither of the windows in my office open because they've been painted right. shut. So I was like, I relate. Yep. <laughs> Tristan's office, his windows open wide and it's I'm kind of jealous. Especially this time of year. I know. Uh-huh. She climbs out the window and I was trying to follow like the architecture as she's like climbing down and I couldn't quite get a grasp on like where she was because usually like the cupola is like the third or sometimes even like fourth floor and so she's climbing out this window and then she's climbing on a roof and it sounds like the roof was a lot lower than what I would expect it to be but I don't know 
She slides down the roof, though, basically, and then managed to get into her bedroom window yeah. and then just falls asleep on her bed. Yeah, yeah. We did have a, a brief look back at Hitman Stewart again. He's not having luck finding his targets. It's about this time or a little earlier, I realized that he's actually looking for Joe and Faye, but doesn't know it. Right. Yeah. So he, again, his targets are a big man with a ponytail. The, sometimes it is described as Indian and then a small, dark skinned boy, about 14. Yeah. And so they didn't, they thought Faye was a, a kid, basically. So someone saw them from a distance, probably, and didn't really. Yeah. And so they, that's what's going on there. I'm very interested in seeing the development of Stuart's character like is he a good hitman is he a bad hitman like <laughs> what what makes a good hitman a good one too is I he mean... like I, I, I have a feeling that like they're going to cross paths multiple times before he figures it out. It's already happened once. Yeah. Or twice, maybe even now. Yeah. So he, I mean, well, granted he got bad information. He has bad intel. <laughs> if he crosses paths with Joe, he's going to know. That's, that's what he's been looking for. He's been looking for Joe because Joe, you know, doesn't go into town. I think he hasn't seen him. Yeah. Joe's a little bit more of a recluse than Faye. Right. So that's the person he's looking for to start. Yeah. Anyway, we get to Nguyen's perspective again. We find out here that he's in cahoots with Wally over something. And he's had a dig site out on Water Island, which is in the last aisles, the same network of aisles, but on the opposite end of where the trouble was. So he's getting ready to go back out and resume whatever he's doing out there. We don't know at this point yet. Right. Yeah. But there's a lot of characters that are doing shady, shady things right. out here. And I kind of like the vibe. <laughs> yeah. Just the, you know, kind of small town. Everybody's kind of up to something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've got two separate murder incidents. We have at least one active looter, probably two. Mm -hmm. I we think have two. a lot of black market buying of things. Um, we have some shady politicians. We have a hitman. I mean, that's probably the most shadiest of them all, frankly. Yes, yes. And I think that about sums it up, but that's quite a lot going on. So yeah, I'm very interested because there's definitely like multiple storylines Yeah, and we're kind of just seeing them develop. So and they're going to come together at yeah. some point, I have faith. So yeah. Yeah. But I'm loving the whole, the fact that it takes place somewhere close to home and we're right. trying to figure out exactly where and i would love to talk to the author and be like what was your inspiration for this and that yeah i've liked looking into some of the things listed and, and you know where is this can i pinpoint where she's talking about and how a lot of times it's like you can see the influences but it's very intentional it seems very intentional of not being from one spot yeah yeah and you can tell, I don't know if she visited that area and wanted to write a book about it or what the case was, but she did her research mm -hmm. and I've enjoyed just trying to figure some things out. Yeah. And if anybody else has read the book, I would love to hear where you think some of these places are and what you think some of these places are inspired by and stuff. Yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this, really. Yeah. Well, that brings this podcast more or less, I think, to a close. Mm -hmm. 
So we did up through chapter 10 this time. Next time we'll read through chapter 20. So the next 10. So I'm looking forward to seeing how all this comes together, how the different narratives kind of come together and how these characters end up interacting with each other. I know we're doing 10 chapters and that may seem like a lot, uh, especially considering the last book we read, but this is a really quick, easy read. So don't let the 10 chapter thing intimidate you. No, it. They're much shorter chapters as yeah, well. Yeah. And then they are much more easily digested, yeah, I'd say. Yeah. So, yes. So, we'll see you all next time for the next 10 chapters. Happy reading, everybody. Archaeology Books for Fun is brought to you by the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a program of the University of West Florida. You can find out more about archaeology and about FPAN at fpan.us. We appreciate any feedback, so if you're listening to us as a podcast, please leave us a review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.